The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org. This is the word of the Lord. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Please bow your heads in prayer with me. Father, we thank you that we are the body of Christ. And Lord, we, uh, as often as we fall short of it, you pick us back up, you set us on solid ground, and you exhort us and encourage to continue on um, serving and loving one another. May we be encouraged and exhorted this morning by this passage to set aside our selfish ambition, our pride, uh, our false humility, and to, uh, to seek the goal of Jesus and serving one another. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I have been anxiously watching recent developments related to COVID. I know I'm not alone. Many of you do that as well. And things seem to change daily. And for, but for me, I would say I'm, I'm, the Lord's blessed me and my family. We're all very healthy. So it's not really a health reason that I'm watching COVID. It's, it's really more about the return of football. Are we going to have football this fall? I mean, with all due respect to basketball and baseball and badminton and bocce, American football is the best sport ever played. I'm serious. Think about this. It requires 11 players to work in sync for each one to do their job. Um, I played football for 10 years. Now, as fleet of of foot as I appear, and I'd like to think I appear fleet of foot, I wasn't a wide receiver or a running back. Uh, None of that for me. I actually played, believe it or not, on the offensive line. Don't laugh, Paul. I played center and at guard for 10 years uh, on the offensive line. I'm serious. That's actually what I did. Um, So I have some experience with the offensive line. And I can tell you that nobody really knows your name. It's um, you never throw. You never catch the ball. You never run with the ball. Um, in fact, you know, while those things are true, if I didn't do my job, a play would be blown up. The quarterback would be sacked. The running back would be tackled for a loss. These kinds of things. It can really be a thankless position. Nobody notices you until you mess up or miss a block, and then you get the attention. An offensive lineman, at least at the highest levels of the college and the pros, tend to be very large men sometimes called road graders uh, of human beings. I mean, let's compare that to a wide receiver. A wide receiver, I mean, these guys, some of their bodies appear to be chiseled from granite. I mean, an offensive lineman, on the other hand, is never sleek. and You can't see the muscle because it's buried underneath a healthy layer of fat. An an O-lineman intentionally carries as much as 100 pounds more than they would otherwise because it helps them be effective at at their job. There's a reason that so many teams refer to their offensive line as slobs. Someone lacking familiarity with football might look at the O-line and say, these guys are just a dime a dozen. You know, there's really nothing special about them. They're just really large human beings. All you really need for a great team is a great quarterback. Doesn't matter who's on the offensive line. But those who understand the game of football know that the heartbeat of a team is the offensive line. 
They know that if the O-line doesn't do their job, the team will lose. And I think you could say it another way. The O-line can't win the game. The O-line's never going to win the football game for the team, but they can definitely lose the game. And I think the same is true of the church. Someone not in the know about the church might think that the guy up front preaching is a big to-do, that he is the one that makes everything go. But those in the know recognize that without people behind the scenes setting up and breaking down, working in the nursery, preparing meals for Awana, calling and texting and emailing during the week, faithfully attending home groups, investing their time and energy into the lives of others, without those things, the church would not run. The church wouldn't be what it is. If those members of Christ's body said, I'm not really that important, nobody knows what I'm doing, so therefore it doesn't matter. If they said that, the church would fall apart. And if other members who appeared to be more influential said, we don't need those people, they're dispensable, the church would also fall apart. So that's what we're going to see this morning in this passage. Now, we, last week we touched on the theme of unity and diversity. That theme continues as we look through verses 12 through 31 this morning. We're given, Paul gives us this analogy of the church to the body, but it's not just anybody. So we're going to take a look at what makes up this body, in particular, as you look at your outline, what makes up a healthy body. And I've highlighted three things that we'll see in this passage. And then we're going to look at what ails the body. And there's a couple of different things, I think, that, again, are in this passage that we can learn about what ails the body of Christ. And then finally, we're going to look at what can heal the body. So let's look at the first point in your outlines. A healthy body is supernatural. Verse 12 again, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Now this is a beautiful analogy. The church is a body, a united, cohesive whole. But a group of people, a group of associated people being compared to a body, that's not a new analogy. Paul wasn't creating something that had never been seen before. It's a very common analogy. In fact, if you, if you think about it, there's, a, lot of, there's a, a word that we use all the time in the English, or many words, that have at the root the Latin word core, C-O-R-P, core. Here's an example, the Marine Corps, right? Or how about another one we hear all the time, corporation. And a corporation is a, a business, it's a group of people that's been combined into one body and it's, a, it's a, uh, united by a legal enactment. So it's not a new analogy, but what brings this body, what brings the church together is altogether different. The end of verse 12 tells us what this body really is, this church really is. Now, you might have expected to say, so it is with the church, but that's not what it says. It says, so it is with Christ. So it is with Christ. So why would Paul say that? Why not just say, so it is with the church? After all, that would be accurate. We're talking about the church. But Paul points us to something bigger than the church. He points us to the, if you'll allow me, the otherworldliness of this body. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, otherworldly, it's, it's supernatural. It's, it's foreign. It's even alien to what we know. It's unlike anything we see or experience in our world. 
But what is it that makes the church otherworldly? Well, I mean, we have a common interest. We're diverse. We care for one another. But the truth is there are other communities and groups of people like that. Rosaria Butterfield, uh, the author Rosaria Butterfield, she came from a, a gay lifestyle when she accepted Christ. In one of her books, she reports that her, her gay community was, frankly, it was great. They had common interests. They cared for one another. She wasn't looking for community necessarily. So, so what is it that drew her to the church? It's Jesus. By faith in him, we are united to him. The gospel of Jesus adopts us into God's family. We are his children, and, and that's why we say brother and sister. The church is marked by its supernatural, otherworldly unity with Jesus. In his book, True Community, Jerry Bridges puts it this way. It is not the fact that we are united in common goals or purposes that makes us a community. Rather, it is the fact that we share a common life in Christ. When you trust that Jesus has died in your place and your sins are forgiven, you are united with him in his death and resurrection. Galatians 2.20 says it this way, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And so the body of believers is unlike any other body that you might find out there. You know, the Marine Corps, and you know, as they say, once a Marine, always a Marine. But even that being true, becoming a, a member, a Marine, doesn't change that person for eternity. And unlike a corporation which is formed for business purposes, and once it has served those purposes, it's dissolved, the body of Jesus is not for business. It's a family. And it will never be dissolved. It is eternal. Across scriptures, the church is compared to, to God's temple. The church is compared to God's family. The church is compared to Jesus' bride. And the temple, of course, is God's dwelling place. His family is where relationship, where relationship takes place. His bride implies his intimacy with the church. But with the body, the church being Jesus' body, what we see is Jesus' unity with his church. It's hard to imagine something more connected than that of a head to its body. So the church then is marked by its supernatural, otherworldly unity with Jesus. But a healthy body is also interdependent. A healthy body is interdependent. The unity between Christ and his church is a function of the Holy Spirit. Read, read with me from verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The Holy Spirit unites us not only to Jesus, but to one another. What baptism is Paul referring to here? It's neither a physical baptism or a second baptism of the Spirit, but instead refers to a believer's spiritual birth at the time of conversion. Like human life beginning not with physical birth, but with conception, in the same way spiritual life begins when the Spirit makes us alive, which is even before we're aware of it. So that's the baptism that we're talking about here. And, and when we drink of the Holy Spirit, it says, all were made to drink of one Spirit. It's not a reference to the Lord's Supper. Some have said, well, this is talking about the Lord's Supper, but that's not what 
I believe it's saying. It's instead like the woman at the well. John 4. It's, it's the living water of the Holy Spirit of which we were made to drink. It's like your parched lawn on these hot summer days. We irrigate it, right? You irrigate your, law, your, your uh, lawn with water to keep it alive. The grass can't irrigate itself. It relies on us to give it what it needs. Without water, it goes dormant and brown. And if it goes longer without water, eventually it will die. In the same way, God waters us with his Holy Spirit. He makes us to drink of his Spirit. His Spirit gives us spiritual life initially, but his Spirit also keeps us alive as well. We rely upon him. Paul says, we were made to drink. He doesn't say, and we picked up and drank. We were made to drink. The providing of the drink was something done to and for us. And so the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus. And it's not just a vertical relationship that the Holy Spirit seals. He also unites us to one another. There is one Spirit and one body, Jew, Greek, slave, free, all are the same in the body of Christ because all have been baptized and drank, made to drink of the Holy Spirit. That means we are no longer unto ourselves. We are not autonomous people, but instead we are united to one another in the same way that the hand is connected to the arm and it's the ear is connected to the head. It also means that our unity then has a distinct purpose, and that is to serve the rest of the body. Think about this. When you walk along a path, your body, without even thinking about it, your body works in unison. The eyes see what is ahead on the path. The shoulders, the hips, the legs, the feet, they all react to what the eyes see by moving left or by moving right, up and down. Each part serves the other for mutual benefit. So too does the unity that we have in Jesus mean that we ought to move in a coordinated fashion. So this cuts against, this won't come as any surprise to you, this cuts against kind of our Western mentality of autonomy. We place such a high value on individualism. Even more than just the individual, we place a high value on individualism. And that is the highest good. But when we aren't thoughtful, individualism and autonomy can work their way into the church, right? That's not how a human body works, and it's not how the church works. We need each other, and we need to give to each other. I think John Wesley put it well. There's nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christian. We may have been feeling that during the quarantine. Not that you necessarily felt unchristian, but you missed the connection of the body, of just seeing and talking to other believers in your family. So a healthy body is supernatural. A healthy body is interdependent. And lastly, a healthy body is serving. Now, you may cringe a little bit, kind of like I do when I hear the phrase, is serving. It's sort of an awkward formulation of words. But unlike the previous two descriptions where the body is supernatural and the body is interdependent, that's kind of a status, right? This one is an action. And it's not just an action, it's an, or one-time action, it's an ongoing, present, continuous action. 
A healthy body is serving today, is serving tomorrow, and is serving until Jesus comes again. Skip ahead with me to verses 27 through 31. So verses 12 and 13, and then these last five verses, bracket Paul's point about the church being the body of Christ. So if you can, just skip ahead with me then. And I'll read these verses for you, 27 through 31. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak tongues? Do all interpret? but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now, Paul introduced the idea of spiritual gifts at the beginning of this chapter, and we talked about that last week. And uh, last week, you know, I went through and kind of described each one of those, and there's a little bit of overlap this week, and so I'm not going to cover some of those gifts that I covered last week. What's new this week are apostles helping and administrating. So let's look at the gift of apostleship. It has some very specific requirements, right? One must have been called directly by Jesus and have followed him from his baptism to his ascension, all right? The apostles spoke with authority for the entire church, right? Not just each local assembly, like a, like a preacher might, but for the entire church and not just for that age, but for the entire church age until Jesus returns, And they had the authority to speak and write the words of God, equal in authority to the Old Testament scriptures. It it really was just an office and a gift for that special time of establishing the church. So that's the the gift of apostleship. We have the gift of, of helping or helps. We might call it mercy ministry or the helping hand of love and mercy. And then we have the gift of administration. And I don't know that administration, I know the translators do their best job, and sometimes there's something lost in the translation here. And I think that that what's lost here is in in administrating, there's a very real leadership aspect to administrating. In fact, one of the the root word that's in the Greek here is actually used in other places to describe the captain of a ship at sea. So one of the things that I have to mention now, of course, being former naval officer, is that one of the things that makes the culture of the Navy different than that of the other services, the Marines, the Air Force, the Army, and one of the things that I would say makes it, I don't know, superior, (laughs) is that of the captain at sea leading his crew through storms, malfunctioning equipment, and the like with very little direction from his superiors, except to accomplish the mission. That kind of autonomy means that to be a good captain, one must be able to lead, make decisions, solve problems, and inspire and motivate the ship's crew. So organizing, when we hear this word administrating, I want you to remember, this is as much about leadership. Organizing and motivating people towards a common goal is really what's in mind here. Now, the main point isn't the gifts themselves. Paul doesn't mean for this list to be Uh, exhaustive, nor the one that we saw in verses 8 through 10 above. These aren't meant to be exhaustive, just as an example of what God makes available to us through his gifts to build the church. And one of the things I I 
you know, you'll hear us emphasize here, I know some of you here never attended the new people's class, maybe even most of you, but it's a term you'll have heard anyhow, every member ministry. We put such a great deal of emphasis on every member ministry at Orchard Bible because we believe that's what God's Word teaches, and I think that's what you see here modeled back in you know, verses 1 through 11, and I think in particular here in verses 27 through 31. God gives us the gifts, these spiritual gifts, these charismata to serve one another, not for our own benefit, but to serve one another. And so to be a member of the body of Christ means that you are not unto yourself. There is no full autonomy. Certainly you're an individual. You're not melded into the whole as losing your individualism. That's not what we mean. But what we mean is that God has called you to serve his body at Orchard Bible. That's what it means to be in every member ministry. We're not, we don't want the model. Sometimes there's a joke that goes around that, you know, there's 100% of the people here, but only 20% are doing the work. We want 100% of the people here and 100% of the people doing the work. That's how we make it go. So we are one body with many members, united in the spirit of Christ. So it's a body that's meant for mutual interdependence, where each member is united to the whole and is equally a part and essential to it. And it's a body where individual gifts are given for the service of the whole, where every member ministry is really what makes it go. Now, without sin, we could just stop right there and be done this morning, have about a half hour for our next service. But sin is ever-present, even amongst the redeemed. So Paul calls, us, uh, calls out two groups in Corinth, one with false humility and the other with pride. So let's, let's look then at these two ailments, false humility and pride, in the following verses. And I'll just read verses 14 through 20 for you. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would make, not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? And I'll, just, I'll stop there, actually, at the end of verse 17. I think this is really interesting. Until, until now, Paul has focused most of his energy on the folks in the church who were creating divisions, those who thought they were proud. They were bringing in their surrounding culture in a very outward and apparent way. I'm of Peter. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. They tolerated immoral behavior. They overemphasized spiritual things that seemed powerful and awe-inspiring. But here, Paul turns his attention toward those who appear pious, but are missing the mark. They appear to be humble. What am I? How could I possibly contribute? My gifts aren't special. They're not unique or valuable. They appear to be thinking very lowly of themselves. There's a real outward, perhaps, sense of humility about them. But the truth is, inwardly, they're riddled by the same desire as the prideful to be somebody. 
Paul says, just because you aren't what you want to be, you don't have the gift of teaching or of tongues, doesn't mean that you aren't still a member of this body, a valuable member of this body. And he even extends the analogy to the ridiculous. What if the whole body was an eye? What if we all got our wish and the whole body was an eye? What if we were all an ear? What good would that be? Pop psychology has a category for this kind of thinking. It's called the inferiority complex. People feel down about themselves because they compare themselves to others. As a result, they feel lesser than others. They say things like, because I'm not a hand, I I don't belong to the body. Even secular psychologists recognize that an inferiority complex, while appearing to be humble, is in fact not humble at all. Dr. Aqualis Gordon in Psychology Today wrote, this is only a half understanding of the inferiority complex and altogether misses the root of the problem. The inferiority complex is a facade that marks a deeper felt sense of superiority. Dr. Gordon calls it a, a sense of superiority. Inside here and when we talk to each other, I think we'd call it pride. Our flesh and Satan use a kernel of truth like, you aren't the best at X or Y. You aren't the best at giving. You aren't the best at faith. You aren't the best at prayer, teaching, serving, whatever it is. And that's true. It is, there's a kernel of truth. Who of us is the best, right? Who of us is the best? But what happens is, Satan and our flesh takes that little nugget of truth and turns it into a lie that says, I'm not important. I can't contribute. I don't have a special gift. And sometimes we follow that lie to a sinful, prideful place where we stop serving. We don't give our best. Tom Schreiner pointed out the problem like this. It is tempting to compare ourselves with others and to feel inferior We constantly wonder whether we stack up, whether we live up to the standards of others. In doing so, listen to this, in doing so, we lose God's perspective of the body in our ministry. We lose God's perspective. Well, then what is God's perspective on the church, on its members and in their ministry? What is God's perspective? Well, let's look at verse 18. I think verse 18 tells us, God's perspective is this. He has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. It is God who decides what gifts we are given. He is the gift giver, after all. His plan and his will in giving gifts is perfect. This is such a critical point that Paul makes it at least four times in the course of just this one chapter. God's sovereignty over the gifts That the church is given. In verse 11, verse uh, verse 7, verse 11, verse here in verse 18, and again in verse 24, and then again in verse 28, five times. My notes are wrong. He writes that God gives gifts as He wills, as He chooses, as He composes, and as He appoints. So, this is a call to you here this morning, watching or listening. God has called you to use the gifts that he gave you. He has arranged the members of the body, his church, each one of them, 
as he chose. It was his will. A person with the gift of helps can no more choose to have the gift of faith than an offensive lineman can choose to be a wide receiver. So get plugged in. Serve in some capacity. The body of Christ needs you. You are, listen to this, you are indispensable, absolutely necessary. This is why we make a big deal about every member ministry. The body of Christ, then, is defined by three things, as we've said, right? Supernatural, it's independent. But only one is an ongoing, continual action. The body of Christ is serving. So let's look at the second common ailment to the church, pride. That was the first ailment, um, false humility. Let's look at pride. I'll read verses 21 through 24 for you. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we actually bestow the greater honor. And on on our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which which our more presentable parts do not require. So Paul flips the coin over. Talked about false humility with those who say, oh, I don't have any gifts to give. Now he flips the coin over and he speaks to the pride of arrogance. Some in the church at Corinth think that some of the body of Christ is not needed. That some of the parts of the body can just be dispensed with. Keeping with the body analogy, Paul says that those parts that are weaker aren't dispensable or optional. They are, in fact, indispensable. Without them, the body doesn't work correctly. He goes even farther and alludes to our our private parts. They are shown the most honor. Now, I want you to note something here. In verse 22, he says the parts that seem weaker. He doesn't say the parts that seem less gifted or less able. He says weaker. In their book, The Art of Neighboring, there's a story or in the book, The Art of Neighboring, there's a story about a man whose neighbor hadn't mowed her yard. First it was two weeks, no mowing. Then a month, still no mowing. Grass is still growing. And then two months had passed, and she had not mowed her grass and hadn't called somebody out to mow the grass. Frustrated by the unsightly lawn, the man called the city who came out to her house. And it turned out that the woman was going through a terrible time with health problems and family issues while trying to hold down multiple jobs. She simply had no time or energy or money to be able to care for her yard. The man had assumed that that she was lazy, that she didn't care about the, the neighborhood, the appearance of their neighborhood and maintaining home value. He realized that if He had started by knocking on her door two weeks in to see if he could mow the grass. He would have seen an opportunity to serve and found the truth. Now, have you ever said about somebody else in the church, even here at Orchard, have you ever said, where is that person? Why aren't they here? They should be serving more. Is it possible that they are the weaker brother or sister? who could use some help. 
Now, it is possible that they're being lazy and they're uncommitted and they need to be exhorted. But it's just as likely that something's not right. And what they need is a call, a listening ear, a gentle word. But it is so much easier to judge the weaker brother or sister than it is to treat them with the greater honor. Our tendency is to bring the system of our culture in the world when we bring that in when we evaluate our brothers and sisters in the church, even ourselves. What have you achieved? What are you capable of? How much influence do you have? But God's system is completely different. Paul says that the present form of this world is passing away. Remember, we said that there is an otherworldliness to the church. It's a body unlike any other body or group of people out there. Let me just think about two ways in which that's true. Those who don't feel encouraged about their ability to serve or make a difference um, or achieve or have influence, those parts of the body are affirmed and reminded that the body needs them to serve and to be a part. And then without them, the body doesn't function properly that they're indispensable. And those, secondly, those who are arrogant about the things they've been given are reminded that all they have is a gift. And that those who seem weaker to them are actually indispensable. They are absolutely necessary for the healthy functioning of the body. So continuing on then, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. I love how Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, finishes this word for the stronger but arrogant people. It's interesting. He doesn't shame them, right? He doesn't shame the arrogant for their strength, but instead he exhorts them to lend it, to lend their strength to those who are weaker. If one member suffers, all suffer. Remember the last time you stubbed your toe? Maybe it's been a while. It hasn't been that long in my house. It wasn't me. It was one of my daughters. I'm not going to name her in order to protect the innocent. But she smashed her toe. And it was bad. I mean, there was some blood. But nothing was broken, and, and really the blood was minor. But in the initial moments, right after she smashed her toe, she cried out, I'm going to die! I mean, that's what it looks like when we all suffer together. That little toe caused so much pain to her whole body that she cried out, I'm going to die. That's how we should feel when another member of our body suffers. We should cry out in the same way. So we've looked at two sides of pride, false humility and arrogance, and how they ail the body, how they prevent service, and how they think they're better than others. So then what is the solution? How can an ailing body be healed? Let's look at point three. Well, hopefully this is obvious. The antidote to pride and false humility is true humility. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. So go forth 
and be humble. Go on. Go be humble. Get some humility and, and report back. Tell me how it went. That's like telling a dead man to come out of his grave. It can't be done. So how then do we grow in humility? Let me give you two ways, and we'll wrap up this morning with these last two ways as our antidote to pride in the body. Practice, just the first one is so simple. Practice giving thanks. Say thank you. Work on growing a heart of gratitude. It's very hard to be prideful when you, when you say thank you and you mean it. A heart that's thankful is a heart that sees the truth. And the truth is that most, if not everything that we have, is a gift. It's a grace. It's God's unmerited favor to us. The Apostle Paul is a great example of what thankfulness looks like. I'm not going to ask you to do this, but if we were to look at his greetings and his letters, you would find that in most of them, in fact, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Philemon, all of those letters start by saying something to the effect of, I thank God for you. But he thanks God for the gift of his ministry, of his friendship, of his partnership in the gospel with these people. Paul knew what it looked like, and he modeled for us that thankful heart that leads to humility. Paul's thankful heart led him to say, and there's a, there's a progression here. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, he said that he was the least of the apostles. In Ephesians 3.8, he said that he was the least of the saints. And in 1 Timothy 1.15, he said that he was the chief of sinners. So Paul's thankful heart led him to really see and understand who he was before God. So the first antidote or the way that, not antidote, but the first way that we find and grow humility in our own lives is by being thankful. And then lastly, we remember the cross. We remember the cross. In 1732, some German believers of the Moravian Brethren felt called to, uh, to minister to slaves in the West Indies, but they were warned that it would be impossible to reach the slaves because in the West Indies, the slaves were separated from the ruling class. So in order to reach these people who had never heard the gospel of Jesus, two Moravian brethren offered to go and be slaves on these plantations. They left behind their station in life and labored alongside these slaves. And because of their humility in serving, the gospel took root. This is a picture of the gospel. Jesus left the comforts of his place by the Father's side. He left the realm of the eternal and spiritual and took on flesh, humbling himself with a body like the very people, listen to this, took on flesh like the very people that he created. He created you and me, and yet he became like us. And his humility went all the way to death on the ignoble cross. In the Corinthians' day, the cross was a symbol of suffering and shame, the opposite of the honor that the Corinthians so desperately craved. And frankly, 
the same kind of honor and esteem that we crave today. But the cross is at the very center of God's design. Jesus didn't rise up and defeat his enemies with power and with might. Instead, he was gentle and lowly. Think about the little children. He welcomed them and said, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Even with sinners and drunkards and prostitutes, there was no anger or rebuke, only a gentle call to repentance through the context of his relationship with them. He saved his rebuke for the prideful ones, for the Pharisees. They were religious, prideful people who looked down on sinners. Jesus suffered, was humiliated and shamed and died on a cross. This is the way, not power or force, that God saves humans from their sin. So it should not surprise us then that he would expect the same of his church. And so when we remember the cross, we remember that we're not worthy of Jesus' love. We're not worthy of his sacrifice on our behalf. When we think in of who we are and what we've done and how little we deserve God's mercy and grace in our lives, that humbles us. There's an old saying, there's no honor among thieves. In the, in the church, I think we might say, there's no self-ambition among those who consider themselves unworthy. There's no self-promotion among those who are thankful for all that they have. And there's no one who is dispensable among those who consider themselves the scum of the earth. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for this body, the body of which we are members. Lord, we thank you for the diversity of gifts, but the unity that we have in your son, Jesus. Lord, just, uh, Lord, we all need to work on humility in our lives. We need to be reminded of the cross and our unworthiness of it and to be thankful for it, Lord, and to be thankful for all of the gifts that you give us. Lord, as we go forward today, even as we go now into um, this time of remembrance, as we remember Jesus' death, just humble our hearts and help us to be thankful for all that you've done. Bless us now in your son's name. Amen. You are dismissed.